We are in Exodus chapter 6 this morning, continuing in chapter 6. It's page 49 if you're using a, a pew Bible this morning. It'll also be on the screen as we get to it here in just a bit. We have been, been walking through the book of Exodus and, and really walking through this confrontation between, between God and, and Pharaoh, or, or what looks like, at least at this point, between Moses and, and Pharaoh. And Moses has been called, Moses has been, has been given a calling, he has this confrontation with God at the burning bush, he's, he's been given all these instructions, um, God, God has, has heard and, and knows, remembers his covenant with the people, and all of this has happened, and, and, and Moses, if you remember, as, as we looked back in, in, in chapter 4, uh, or in chapter 5, Moses has this initial showdown, this initial confrontation with Pharaoh, which I think Moses probably thought was going to be the only confrontation with Pharaoh. He comes into the throne room with Pharaoh, if you remember, as we talked about for the last couple of weeks, and says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response isn't what Moses might have anticipated, isn't certainly what Moses was hoping for. The response is not, okay, we'll let the people go. You can do what you want. You can wander off into the desert. You can worship your God. It's not that at all. But instead, Pharaoh's response is, who is this God that I should obey him? Who is this God that I should obey him? And in the midst of that, as he, as Pharaoh then changes the, the rules for the Hebrew slaves and makes them find their own straw and, and, and things get harder, not better. And, and the Israelite people, the Hebrew people begin to get upset with Pharaoh because of what's happening. And, and all this happens. And, and finally, we, we come there at, at the end of chapter five and, and Moses says, God, you have not delivered your people at all. And God responds in chapter six. And that's what we looked at last week. God responds and says, now, you will see what I'm about to do. All of this has happened. All of this, all of, all of, all of these things have gotten worse, not better. All these people are against you. All of this is building up. And now, God says, I will show you. He says, I am the Lord. Four times, as we looked at that passage last week, Four times God says, I am the Lord. He says it at the very beginning. He starts his response to Moses, I am the Lord. Two times in the middle of the story of his response to Moses, he says, I am the Lord. And he closes his retort back to Moses with, I am the Lord. From beginning to end and even in the middle, all of this is going to be about me. As I rescue the Hebrew people, it's not going to be about your name, Moses. It's not going to be about the names of the people. It's not going to be about Pharaoh or Egypt. It's going to be about me. From beginning to end, it's all about me. And as he shares this response with Moses, this response that's all about him, he says, I am the Lord and I will, he says seven times, I will, I will bring you out and I will deliver you. I am going to rescue you. I am going to liberate you from your oppression and from, deliver you from the Egyptians. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. 
I will take you and I will be your God. I will adopt you and bring you into my family. You will be my firstborn son. And I will bring you to a land and I will give it to you. This promise that I have given to your forefathers that I gave to Abram from the very beginning, this inheritance that I have promised to you, I will give it to you. I will make good on my promise and you will be in the land, you will possess the land that I have promised from the beginning. It's all about me though. I am the Lord. Last week, I said that there should have been great hope in that for Moses. There should have been great hope in that for the Hebrew people. But there should also be great hope in those words to us. Because the I wills of this salvation plan that God gives in Exodus chapter 6, Jesus turns them in the New Testament. Jesus turns these I wills of salvation into the it is finished of the gospel. Jesus turns the I wills that God promises here in Exodus chapter five into the finished work of the gospel. God says to the the Israelites, to the Hebrews, I am the Lord and I will do this. And their response as he shares this plan, as he reaffirms and reestablishes the plan that he has for them, that he is going to do it, their response is, a broken spirit, and a harsh slavery, and they do not listen. God's I wills are met with I don't care from the Hebrews and an I don't want to from Moses. And so where we closed last week on verse 13 of chapter six, it says that the Lord commands and charges Moses and Aaron to go. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the Hebrews don't care and that they have a broken spirit from harsh slavery. It doesn't matter that Moses has once again come before God and said, my lips don't work the way that I want them to work. I'm not very good with my words. I cannot speak very well. I do not want to do what you are calling me to do, God. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. I am the Lord and I will do it. And so he sends Moses and Aaron back at verse 13. And so we come to chapter six, verse 14, anticipating what might happen as Moses heads back into Pharaoh's throne room to bring this charge back to Pharaoh. You would think that that would be what would happen here in Exodus chapter six, verse 14, but instead, we get a genealogy, which seems entirely out of place. We get a long family tree here in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 6 which doesn't seem like it should be here. We had a genealogy some of these same people we had earlier in in Exodus chapter 1 that seems like that's where it should fall that's where that's where these books usually begin is with a with a genealogy to help us to figure out the family tree but that's not what happens here we have another one here in Exodus chapter 6. Some of the genealogies that we find placed in scripture are, are to be used, are meant to be used genealogically. We're to see the family tree. We're to, to see the generations and how they came. It's to show us the importance of the history of those generations and to help us to see the value of the individuals that are listed there. 
We're to see those names and we're to understand their importance, both to their family and to the grand scheme that God has planned from the very beginning, that God has been working through all of those generations in history. It's a big deal to be listed in these generations. It's a big deal to be Hezron or Oad or Mushi or Zikri. And those are just some of the names I think I can pronounce. You'll see in just a moment that there's a number of them I can't. It's a big deal to have your name listed in one of these genealogies. It's a big deal for these guys. It's kind of like, uh, which this doesn't happen anymore, we're, we're, we're entering into generations where, where no one will have this experience, but it's kind of like when you open the phone book for the first time and find your name in it, you exist. That's what these genealogies are like. Oftentimes they're placed for that reason, not so that you can celebrate, but so that you know. You know the generations that have come and gone because your family tree, your genealogy, it's important and you are valued and you are important in the midst of it. So some genealogies are placed because of that. But there's some genealogies, in particular this one that's in Exodus chapter six. There are some genealogies that are placed in scripture not just to be used genealogically, but they're placed in scripture theog theologically. They're used theologically. They're used so that we might better understand God and his glory. And that's what's happening here in Exodus chapter six. This genealogy that's here that we're gonna read through here in just a moment, this genealogy is placed here so that we might better see God's glory and his plan for his people. There are a number of roles that, that throughout Exodus, throughout, really throughout all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Bible, there are a number of roles that Moses is going to hold in the midst of this. Moses is, is, the, is the leader of these Israelite people, of the, of the Hebrew people. He's the one that God has, has called and chosen. He's the leader. He's, he's the rescuer. We've already been talking about that, that picture that Moses has of being the rescuer of the Israelites. He's the redeemer. He's the one that goes in to help buy back the, the Israelite people from the Egyptians. He's the liberator. He is the one that will march them through the Red Sea. He is the one who will, will stand on the mountaintop and God will give the law to him and, and he then in turn gives the law to the people and becomes the lawgiver. There's all of these different roles that Moses is going to play in, this, in Exodus and in the Pentateuch. But there's two particular roles that, that I think are coming to a head right here in Exodus chapter 6 that, that we haven't really seen very much before in the Bible. There's, there's this role of prophet that Moses holds. We haven't really had a prophet yet in Scripture as, as we walked through Genesis and this first part of Exodus. There have been parts of this idea of prophecy, but there isn't, there isn't necessarily someone who God has, has reached out to and selected and grabbed a hold of and said, you are going to speak for me. You are my mouthpiece. But he's done that to Moses. He's grabbed a hold of Moses and said, you're gonna be the one that goes. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're walking into Pharaoh and you are going to share with him. You are going to say to him the words that I say to you. That's why Moses goes in so strongly, thus says the Lord. Because he knows he is God's mouthpiece. He is a prophet. He is speaking the very words of God to Pharaoh. He is also speaking the very words of God to the other Israelite people as, as we walk through Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch. 
This prophet role is, is, a, is a fairly new role in the midst of this, of God using a man to be his mouthpiece. And we even see this word prophet, and if, if you were to flip over a page into chapter seven, right away in chapter seven in verse one, it says, it says this, this is what God says to, to Moses in seven one. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, you're, you're speaking my words to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God is saying, Moses, I chose you. You are the prophet. You are my prophet, Moses. I'm giving you my words to speak, Moses. And now you're going to be like I am to you. You are going to be to Aaron. And Aaron is going to speak the words that I've given to you, that you have given to Aaron. Aaron will then speak it to Pharaoh. Aaron becomes the prophet and, and you are like God to him. There's this picture of prophecy that, that God has selected Moses and he is a prophet. But there's also another, another new role that's about to come about as, as we walk through Exodus, and it's, and it's alluded to here in this genealogy. So Moses is the prophet, he is God's mouthpiece, but Aaron is going to become God's priest. Another role that we haven't seen yet. The priest is the is the liaison. He's the, the mediator that comes between God and his people. He's the bridge keeper between man and God. And that role is going to be filled by the descendants of Levi. It's going to be filled by the Levites. And in particular, the, 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 the majority of that role is going to be filled by Aaron's family. Aaron is going to be the father of the priesthood and the priesthood is going to come through the Levite family, many of them will be involved in the priesthood, but the, 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 the highest level of that priesthood will be filled through Aaron and through his family, at least immediately in this beginning of this new territory. And those, that picture gets picked up in this genealogy. And so I hope this morning, we're gonna read through it here, I hope to just give you a few pictures as we read through it of, of what the Israelites would have understood as this came about. Because if you remember, this, this part of Exodus, it's, it's not being written in real time. It's being written after all of these things have happened. Then Moses is having this written down, and it's, then it's being read and shared to people who are looking back and remembering where they were at this time. So, so it's, not, it's not being revealed as it's happening, but all of this is being written down. So later... The Hebrew people, the Israelite people, they've, they've already left Egypt. They've already been given the Ten Commandments, the law. They've, they've, all of this has already happened, and now they're looking back. And these stories that I'm about to share with you about some of these people that are in here, these sto- they already know. They already know these things that have happened. And so when they go back and they hear these names in this genealogy, they're picturing something, they're understanding something that, that we don't totally understand because we don't have all of the picture, we don't have all the building blocks that they did. And so this morning, what I hope to do is to help you see some of those building blocks so that you might understand it in the same way that they understood it as it was first shared with them. So let's read together, or let me, well, if there's a volunteer that wants to read this passage, you certainly can come up and do that. We're gonna start in in verse 14. I'm gonna read with confidence and pretend I know how to pronounce these names. 
and you just smile along as I do. Exodus chapter six, starting in verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zahor, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman, these are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram, being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikari, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elizaphan, and Shithari. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminabad, and the sister of Nishan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when, Mo when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This genealogy, I think, gives us some highlights that we might be able to better understand this whole picture, this whole priesthood that's about to develop through, through the names that we find in this genealogy. So let me just highlight a couple of these genealogies for you. In fact, there's a, I, I have a picture. You're not going to be able to see it very well, but there's a picture of the family tree that's listed here. Um, it, so it's, it's a little bit hard to see, but, but as, as, the story, as the genealogy starts out, it starts with Jacob's, Jacob's sons, and it starts with Simeon and Reuben. That was son number one, Jacob's son number one, Jacob's son number two, and then Jacob's son number three was Levi. And so Levi is, it, 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 Jacob's sons, it only gives us the first three because then we start going down from Levi. So Jacob has, his third son is named Levi. And then from there, we find Levi has three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And so then those are listed. And then we were given a few that were under that, under, under Levi's sons, because those are the generations that we're, that we're trying to follow here in Exodus. And so uh, we're not going to talk about all these names, but let me just share with you just a few. The, Levi had three sons. He had three sons, Gershon, 
Kohath, and Merari. And I've already, I already said to you that this priestly line, this priestly office that we're talking about, this new office that's being established or about to be established after the Israelites leave, leave uh, Egypt, this new line that's being established is going to be filled by, by the Levites. The, the descendants of Levi are going to fill this priestly role, this mediator between God and the people. So much so that when, the, when, when it's finally time to enter into the promised land, which is, which is still a number of years away because they're going to wander in the desert, but when they go to enter into the promised land, Joshua and the, and the leaders, uh, God works through them and gives them set places that they're to go. That each tribe from these 12 tribes of Jacob, each tribe is to go. So, so Reuben's group, they have a, a spot that they're to live in. And Simeon's group has a spot that they're to live in. But the Levites don't have a spot. All the 11 tribes, they all get spots. But the Levites, the, the 12th tribe, they don't have a designated spot to live in because they're scattered around to all of the different tribes so that they can be priests within those families, within those tribes, to the different cities, so that they can be the priests and be the mediator between God and the people. And so uh, he's, he's establishing that early on. And one of the things that we see in, in, in Numbers, chapter 3, if you were to go and, and read there, these roles begin to be defined. And so these three sons of Levi, Gershon and, and uh Kohath and Merari, they're given specific jobs that, that Moses gives to them, that God gives through Moses to them on the ways that they are to help lead the people in worship. They're given th- three specific jobs. Their families, their clans are given specific jobs. Um, for, first, Gershon. In Numbers chapter 3, we read this, but he's given specific instructions in Numbers chapter 3 that their family, their whole clan, is to live when, when the tabernacle is built and the, and the Israelites are, are wandering around through the desert and they stop and they build the tabernacle. When that happens, just to the west of the tabernacle, that's where Gershon and his family are to set up their camp. They're to, they're to live right on the west side of the tabernacle. And it's their responsibility, says in Numbers chapter 3, it's their responsibility to, to care for and to guard the exterior of the tabernacle. It's their job. It's their job every time that they pack up and move, Gershon and his family, his clan, it's their job to be in charge of the outer structure of the tabernacle. They're in charge of all of the curtains that are used for the outer walls of the tabernacle area. They're in charge of the curtains that separate the different areas inside the tabernacle. They're in charge of all of the ropes and the cords that they use to tie up all of these different parts of the outer structure. That's Gershon. That's his family's job. Son number two, Koath. He's to camp on the south side of the tabernacle when they come to a rest. And the Koath clan, they're, according to Numbers chapter 3, they're responsible for all of the interior furnishings. They're to make sure that they carry the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the prescribed way. They're to gather all of the, the table and the lampstand and the altars and all of the different pieces of the inside of the tabernacle, the vessels of the sanctuary, anything that's used in the ministering, the working of the tabernacle, Koath, is to grab those things. His clan is to care for those things and to bring them to the new spot. And then Merari, the third son, his clan is to camp on the north side 
of the tabernacle. And Aaron, Aaron and his family, they're going to camp on the east side, if you're wondering what's on the far side there. But Merari is to camp on the north side. And his family is responsible for the frame and the structure of the tabernacle. So once all the curtains come off, that, that Gershon and, and his family have gathered all the curtains in the outer part of the tabernacle, and Koath has grabbed, their family has grabbed all the things on the inside of the tabernacle. Merari, it's his job, it's his family's job to be responsible for the frame, for the structure, for all the bars and the pillars and the bases and the pegs and the cords. He's responsible for all of those things. His clan is responsible for the outer structure of the tabernacle. All this is in Numbers chapter three, if you want to read it and see it there. So every time that the tabernacle is set up, every time that it's torn down, every time that they gather it all together to move it, every time that, that, that it's built up and torn down, every time that it's reset, Gershom, Koath, Merari, their families, even as their generations pass away, their families are involved in setting it up and tearing it down, preparing, preparing the house of worship so that people, so that the people might worship God together. Even all the way, if you were to, to, to look all the way through the story, all the way to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, Solomon at that point has built a temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the permanent standing home of God, the tabernacle is the temporary one that moves around. The temple becomes the permanent one. In First Chronicles chapter 9, as that, that temple is there, these families are still ministering day and night, it says in First Chronicles chapter 9. They're still there. They're still doing the jobs. They're still helping others worship in the ways that were instructed to them right here back in Exodus. But there's more than just these three guys. There's more as, as, the, as the Israelites were, were hearing these stories, they would, they would have heard these three names, Gershon, Koath, Merari. They, they would have known instantly, those are, the, those are the families of the Levites. It's their jobs to do all these things. They've been leading us already. They would have remembered that. But they would have remembered some of these other stories too. They would have remembered this story. Moses's, Moses and Aaron have a, have a cousin. He's listed in verse 21. One of the sons of Izar, Korah would be a cousin to Moses and to Aaron. And in Numbers chapter 16, there's a story about Korah. Korah comes in Numbers chapter 16 and he comes to Moses and to Aaron and, and he's gathered up a, a number of people with him. There's 250 chief priests that are gathered up, well-respected men who Korah has gotten together. Korah is, is, is a little bit off of Aaron's family line and he's not happy with the jobs that he's been given. He doesn't like the things that, that have been given to him, the, the, the instructions that have been given to him. So he's gathered 250 other guys, well-respected men, well-known men. And they come, they come to Moses and they come to Aaron in Numbers chapter 16 and they say this, Moses, Aaron, you have gone too far, they say. All in the congregation, we're all holy, every one of us, and the Lord is among all of us, so why do you exalt yourselves over and above the assembly of the Lord? They're saying, we all are important. We all have these jobs, these instructions that you're giving to us. We want something bigger. We want something more important. We, we're just like you. We want to be in the same role as you. And Moses Moses responds to Korah, 
in Numbers chapter 16, and he says, is it too small a thing that God has given you these duties to serve? Are they too tiny for you? Are you too big for the job that you've been given from God? And so what, there's a back and forth kind of in Numbers chapter 16 that you can read it if you, if, if you have opportunity. But, but basically what, what Moses says is he says to these guys, why don't you put together an offering and tomorrow come back here and you bring your offering that you've put together, you bring that before God and we'll just see what happens. We'll see if God accepts your offering that you bring. And so that's exactly what happens. They, they put together this offering, they bring it the next day and, and as, they, as they bring it, instead of God accepting the offering of Korah and these other men, the instruction comes down that everyone should back away from Korah and these men. They've brought their offering, but the instruction from God says, step away from these guys, step away from their families, step away from the area that they're in. And in that moment then, it tells us in Numbers chapter 16 that, that he opens up, God opens up the ground right in that spot and the ground swallows up all of these men and all of their families and all of their tents and all of their belongings and covers them up and buries them alive right there in that moment. And I think, I know God is saying, these callings that I've given, these duties, these are not small tasks. These are not little jobs, I'm serious. God is saying, I'm serious about the ways that I have commanded and called you to worship me. Worshiping me is not a trite and trivial thing. It's intentional, it's serious. I've designed it in a way that I want it to be done. And it's a significant thing. As the Hebrews would have been hearing these stories, as they would have been hearing this genealogy, they would have known the story of Korah. But it's not just that story. Aaron has a couple of sons. They're listed a verse later in 23. Aaron's wife bears him Nadab and Abihu. They have a story similar to Korah's in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, they're the sons of Aaron. They, 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 they're, they're, in, they're directly in this, this high priestly family line. They're not, they're not like Korah who are on the outer edges. They're, they're, they're in the main line of, that God has called to be the priest for the people. And one day in Leviticus chapter 10, one day these two sons, they decide that they're going to to add some things to the worship. They know that God has given some, some specific instructions for them on how they're to worship. It's particularly about, this is about fire. They, they, they're to light some incense and to burn some incense as, as, as part of the worship. And they decide that they, they want to make it bigger. They want to do more. They want to add some unauthorized fire to the equation. And so in Leviticus chapter 10, uh, they decide to add some additional fire elements to this order of worship that they've been working out. And instead of them having a little bit more fire, instead of them adding a couple of flames to the order of worship, instead, it says in Leviticus chapter 10, that, fire, that the fire of the Lord comes out and burns them up right there as they're ministering this worship in the tabernacle. They're consumed by the fire, and, and their cousins, Mishael, Elizaphan, who are also listed in the genealogy, they're given the instruction to go and to remove their charred bodies 
from the tabernacle. God is serious. God is serious about his worship. He's serious about these roles that he has given. This genealogy closes with, with one more son. So Eliezer is Aaron's son. He has a son named Phineas, who again is in this direct high priestly line. And in Numbers chapter 25, we get the story, well, there's several stories of Phineas, but this one is in Numbers chapter 25. When the Israelites, when they finally do escape from Egypt, they, they wander around in the desert and they, and they just, they, 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 never, they never worship God the way they're supposed to. They never worship God exclusively. They never do what God is calling them to do in the ways that God is calling them to do it. And, and, and num- by Numbers chapter 25, the Israelite people, they're, they're all over the map in their worship. They, they, they worship the one true God. They still take the tabernacle around like they're, like they're supposed to. They're still a pillar of fire, and they're still a cloud, and, and God is still there. But, but they add on these other things. There's, there's all these other people that are living in that area that they're, that they're befriending, that they're, that they're becoming connected with. And so by Numbers chapter 25, they not only are worshiping the one true God, but they're also, they're also worshiping Baal by this point. And specifically, it says in Matthew chapter 25, there's this group of, of men who are, are taking these Midianite women, these, these other women from the area, and, and committing adultery with them and worshiping their gods, and, and in fact, are, you, are, are taking those women and are, are bringing those women in front of, of the one true God, in fact, coming into the tabernacle and, and committing adultery in the tabernacle where the worship of the one true God is to happen. And in Numbers chapter 25, uh, God, God is fed up with this and has sent a plague on the Israelites, on the, on the Hebrew people. He sent a plague. There's 24,000 people who are being killed by this plague because of this worship of, of Baal. And in Numbers chapter 25, he finally says, God finally says to the people, it's time to kill everyone that's yoked to Baal. It's time to, to, to put them on a stake and to kill them right in front of, of the whole crowd. And the Israelites, they're, they're, it's not that they've rejected that plan. They're just, they can't believe it. And so in Numbers chapter 25, they, they've been given this instruction by God to kill all these people who are, who are worshiping Baal, who are worshiping idols instead of worshiping the one true God. And they're, they're, they've heard that instruction. They're at the gate of the, of the tabernacle. They're weeping over this instruction that God has given to them. And while that's happening, while they're weeping, after giving this instruction, there's one guy, one Israelite guy, uh, Zimri is his name, and he is, at that very moment, he's, he's taken this Midianite woman, Cozy, uh, Cosby, and he's sneaking her into the tabernacle in that moment when this judgment has come down and everyone's weeping at the edge of the tabernacle. And Phineas, Aaron's grandson, Phineas sees what's happening. And he gets up from, from where all these people are, are, are bowed down, weeping and, and, and torn up about the commands and instructions that God has given to them. And he gets up. He sees Zimri and Cosby going into the tabernacle to commit adultery right there in, in, in the place of worship. 
And Phineas, it says, gets up and takes a spear and goes into the tabernacle, into the chamber, it says, right behind these two, this man and this woman, and takes the spear and stabs them through both of them, stabs through both the man and the woman, and kills them both in the chamber. And the response, God praises the zeal of Phineas. God praises what Phineas does and in fact stops the plague that has been killing 24,000 people so far because of the idolatry of the, of the Israelites. Worshiping the one true God is serious business. And God has designed it that way. He has set it up that way. And so he, he's, he's, this, this genealogy falls right here in Exodus chapter 6 because we're about to see Aaron take a much larger role as, as Moses' prophet, as Moses' God to Aaron, who, who then speaks to Pharaoh. This priestly role becomes much bigger. Aaron's role becomes much bigger as we jump into Exodus chapter 7. And so we have this genealogy here so that we can theologically think about what God is doing so he gives these reminders, and then, and then we see in verse 26, after all these reminders, we, we come back to focus on Aaron and Moses to remind us of where we are in the story. And it says, these are the Aaron and the Moses to whom God said. It was they who spoke to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the people out of Israel. This Moses, this Aaron. We're to see, we're to understand, we're to have this picture where God says, these are the guys. These are the guys that I have chosen. These are the guys that speak for me and these are the guys who are going to be the the mediator between you and me. These are the guys. This Moses, this Aaron. I've chosen them. I'm intentional about it. I'm serious about it. I've chosen them. These roles, though, that even though God has intentionally chosen this Aaron and this Moses, these roles that he's given to Moses and to Aaron, they're temporary roles. They have them for their lives, and, and they're passed on even to generations. Aaron, as, as, we, as we've already looked at, Aaron, the, the descendants of Aaron, they, they continue to be in those high priestly roles. They have it for a long time, but they're temporary and imperfect. And it's not until later that all of those roles become joined together in a perfect way. There's two other names that you may be recognized in this line of genealogy. There's two names that we saw just a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew chapter 1. In verse 23 of Exodus chapter 6, in verse 23, we see that Aaron took his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Abinadab and the sister of Nashon, it says in Exodus 6. And those same names show up again in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ that we looked at during Advent. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab was the father of Nashon, Nashon was the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. And it goes on until we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. 
who is called Christ. These roles of prophet, these roles of priest, these roles of of lawgiver and liberator and rescuer and redeemer, these roles of savior, they ultimately will be combined in Jesus. They ultimately will be combined finally in Christ. The perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king is Jesus the Christ. He's the one who will bring all of these things together. Because man, we understand the need to worship. We understand the instructions that have been given to us, but we cannot, we do not, we do not understand the seriousness with which God has designed and takes his worship. But Jesus, Jesus understands it perfectly and brings it all together perfectly. Jesus does it perfectly. He knows all the instructions that God has given and obeys them perfectly. Jesus doesn't add or subtract from the things that God has planned. Jesus doesn't rise up and pretend that he's greater than what he is. Jesus doesn't have to try to sneak some kind of adulterous female into the tabernacle. But he comes as the perfect groom to marry the church to the Father. He comes and fulfills all of the steps that God has orchestrated for him from beginning to end, does not add and does not subtract. And he does it in the perfect way and in the perfect role, just as God has called him to do. And he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our hope today in Jesus and that's modeled here in Exodus chapter 6 Aaron and his family the Levites and their family model this priestly role for us worship team is going to come and lead us as we close this morning I hope I, I, I think that, that the purpose of this was, was for the, the Hebrews, for the Israelites to, to again to be reminded of of the plan that God had for them. He was establishing this role, this this priestly line through Levi, through the descendants of Levi. He was establishing this priestly line. He was serious about his worship. He wanted them to see that. He wanted them to remember that. He is the Lord and he will save his people. And for us, thousands of years later, I think the lesson for us is that he wants us to know God perfected all of those things, not just in the tribe of Levi and through the line of David, but he perfected all of these things in his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might, so that we might have hope, so that we might have rescue, so that we might have redemption, so that we might be liberated, so that we might be saved. God has given us hope through Jesus. Stand with me this morning. So we close and sing together.
today comes from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and world passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. 